the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. In the second half of the show, you'll hear from Dominic Coyle of the Irish Times and Peter Vale of Grant Thornton on the latest structures being used by global multinationals in Ireland to avoid paying tax on their incomes. But before that, I was joined by a panel of Irish Times reporters, Mark Paul, Fiona Redden and Joe Brennan, to discuss the major issues of the week. Everything from Airbnb rental incomes to the latest in the tracker mortgage scandal and revelations of a potential data breach at independent news and media. I began by talking to Fiona Redden about a survey of Airbnb properties in Dublin, which showed that 10 landlords are earning incomes of €100,000 plus per year from using the sharing website. Fiona, you've managed to get your hands on some figures that show one property in Dublin's south city centre is making almost €164,000 a year from Airbnb, which equates to an average daily rate of €651. I'm not sure the the Shelburne's able to charge that kind of rate for some of its rooms. It seems like an incredible uh, sum of money. What do we know about this property and where did the data come from? Yeah, So it's a six-bed property in the Dublin city centre near Trinity College. And it came from this analytics company. It's a US company, AirDNA. And what they do, because Airbnb don't give too much information itself, is they scrape now, the AirDNA, sites. AirDNA, it sounds, sounds similar to Airbnb, but it's a, a separate company. A separate company, yeah, separate company. And it takes all the information. So it'll look at an average booking fee for one of these properties, and then it'll work out how many nights it's actually booked for, and then it'll give you annual earnings on it. And it does that right across Dublin and Ireland. And well, Okay, and so 10, at least 10, 10, more than 10, right? And that's per property, that's not per landlord. Uh, So, I mean, a landlord could potentially own a couple of these properties. Yeah. And I mean, I guess what it shows really is that it's the latest evolution in the property market. You know, we had the switch, we had the switch from owning a property, then the money was made in renting the property. Now the money is to be made in the short term rentals. And I think it's not just an Airbnb phenomenon. It's it's much wider than that. I mean, even if you just look at daft short-term lets, there's over 300 short-term lets there. Now, previously, years gone by, people would always have found struggle to find a short-term let. That's where the money seems to be made. And I guess another factor possibly is rent controls. I mean, they came in now last year, but do they apply to short-term lets? No. Do you have to register with the RTB, maybe have some troublesome tenants with short-term lets? No. Yeah. So now, there was some controversy a little while back as to whether these uh, Airbnb hosts, shall we say, should have to pay income tax or, or not. And I think mm-hmm. the revenue commissioners uh, are of the view that they should. And certainly if this kind of money has been earned on properties, they definitely should. Yeah. I mean, I think the revenue was always very clear in that it's people themselves who hoped for a different outcome, perhaps. I mean, it's income, so you have to pay tax on yeah. it. And of course, Airbnb started out as, you know, Mary and Joe letting out the spare room to somebody who was coming into town for yeah. a couple of days or whatever. But clearly this has uh, stepped up yeah. in, I mean, in terms that's of... that's obviously still true. That that still happens. People let out a spare bedroom. They let out their apartment when they're on holidays. But it's, it, it's changed an awful lot. And there are now professional landlords. You'll hear of people buying an apartment just for the short-term let, yeah. mar- letting market. Mark Paul, you've covered the hotel sector quite a bit over the last um, few years. I note from Fiona's story that the average daily rate for an Airbnb letting in Dublin was $181 compared to 128 for a hotel room. So the hoteliers would probably say, listen, we're, we're great value, even though they're getting it in the neck for... Uh, you know, for some for charging some pretty saucy rates in Dublin at the minute. And maybe, I, you know, I just wonder how we square the circle here because clearly there's a shortage of hotel rooms in Dublin. We all know that, which is probably encouraging a lot of these landlords to 
let their rooms on Airbnb and yet they're able to charge a lot more than hotels. Well, you know, average rates sometimes can be very misleading because an average, of course, is you know, it's, it's not a median. Um, so it's, it's, it's the average of, of a compendium from very, very cheap rates to very, very, very expensive uh, uh, rates. Um, so averages themselves can be quite misleading. But look, I, it, it's not just um, uh, the, the sort of shortage of hotel rooms uh, that is, that, that's a factor here. It's just a, a complete change in consumer behaviour and how accommodation is distributed across the internet. It's just another example of how the internet has 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 created or invented uh, another platform that that just simply did not exist a number of years ago, um, and 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 people can now find their way um, into spare bedrooms in houses all over Dublin or all over Ireland in a way that they just never could before. People from from any country in the world just have to log on. Um, it's a it's a it's a complete change in consumer behaviour. Um, um, Do Airbnb hosts benefit from the nine percent special VAT rate? Do they benefit from the 9% special VAT rate? Well, I don't they think they... should pay VAT if they earn over 37,500. But right. whether they, they declare that and pay for it... Is another... Is another is issue. Is another matter, yeah. Sorry, Mark. No, I, I'm, I was just pointing out, you know, like there are local factors in Dublin. Obviously, we have a chronic shortage of hotel rooms and that is driving a lot of, displacing a lot of people who would otherwise be staying in hotel rooms are possibly now staying in Airbnb mm-hmm. rentals. Um, but well, I, Hoteliers I, have been accused of charging rip-off rates now, mind you. But it, So if the average uh, for Airbnb is substantially higher, I mean, it's nearly 50% higher according to the, this but, data. But is that, that average per room or per house and property? It no, says it, the average daily equivalent. rate. The average daily rate. So... Uh, you know, does this suggest that Airbnb hosts are ripping people off? I think I think if if there's a market out there and, and, and there are prices and people are willing to meet those prices, I think it's very hard to argue that anyone's being ripped off because nobody's holding a gun to people's heads and saying... But you've got to say somewhere, if you're coming to Dublin, who knows what it's for? It might be for an event, it might be for a funeral, it might be to see a new baby. Who knows what it's for? You know, I mean, people come to uh, cities for all sorts of different reasons. A lot of them are compelled at a certain time to come. Um, some of them come by choice. Obviously. I, 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 I think Airbnb is fantastic. I think it's just opened up an yeah. entire... What's the most you've paid in Airbnb? I know you've used it abroad quite the, a few times. The most, the most that I've paid, I, I think in Ireland you tend to average about about 80 to 100 euros a night um, 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 for a property that I've, that I've, that I've bought my, my, my family to, which is pretty cheap. I actually stayed in one in Donegal. Really, really nice cottage that I never would have found otherwise. Um, and it was, uh, I brought my parents, I brought my two kids. We had a three-bedroom cottage that had just been renovated and it was 80 euros a night um, um, in Donegal. Uh, you know, kind of at the, I, I think, and, and and to me, that is just Airbnb has has opened up an entire new um, um, span of the tourism industry that just didn't exist before. Yeah. So it shows the value in it, but it doesn't reflect the downsides as well in terms of supply. I mean, if you look well, at the number, what's this doing for the long term rental the market? Because obviously, there's a huge shortage of rental properties available yeah. for people who want to live and work in the city. So, if you look at terms of listings, properties for sale, properties for rents, they've all been declining dramatically. The only one that's been increasing is Airbnb. How many available? About 7,000 at the moment. And how many rental properties, long-term rentals? We don't know that. It's it's difficult to determine because lots of them are holiday homes maybe or shared properties. But but, but But you'd have to imagine there's more and more if this keeps growing. And then we hear the landlords, you know, landlords are leaving the property market. It's not worth their while. And you'd wonder, are they leaving the long-term rental market and moving into this? Mark. D- D- Dublin City Council appeared before an Oireachtas committee there quite recently, within, within the last couple of months, and they did an analysis of figures, and I think they may have taken it from the RDNA, RDNA side as well. Um, and they tried to calculate a figure of how many houses have been taken out of the, 
the, the, the normal rental stock yeah. in Dublin and they did it on the basis of, of how long the rental per year and they estimated that it was about they reckoned about 600 to 700 I think was the figure but actually one of the housing officers from Dublin City Council actually told the Jarkis Committee that he thinks that it's a little bit overblown to say that Airbnb is one of the reasons for a housing shortage it may contribute and it may be an exacerbating factor but it's not the cause of it the reason we have a housing shortage is because we had a property crash a banking crash and because all of our property developers went bust and we weren't and building properties for a number of years it's, it's not Airbnb B's fault or any of those other platforms. They exacerbate it. Mm. But it's not they're not the root cause. Yeah. But there is another problem that this whole industry has um, opened up here without the necessary regulations. I mean, we've heard about the tax where so people were acting as landlords, didn't know mm. they had to pay tax. They did. I mean, what about insurance? These properties, for example, have smoke alarms. Uh, do don't. they have fireproof doors? There's, do they have no emergency, a proper emergency exits? And I, the bigger one, of course, and I mean, you've alluded to Dublin City Council, is planning. Mm. The, none of these apartment blocks have planning for commercial type businesses, B and B type. And Fiona, businesses. are the revenue commissioners going to track down these people and make them pay tax? That's what that's what well, a lot of people want to know. It seems that they haven't to date. I mean, they haven't come after people saying, "I know you rented this property on this many nights." So your best year. guess is that none of these people are earning hundred grand or more oh, from I their properties. Say that at all. <laughs> Right. We, we so are they, are they companies we or are they individuals? Do we know that? They are both. They're a mixture of both. There are definite companies now emerging short-term letting specialists. And do we know if the revenue commissioners are planning to go after it? Well, remember, they have all the information because Airbnb, um, mm. they signed an agreement about two years ago. And of course, so you'd Airbnb imagine they will. Yeah. Why wouldn't they go after the money? Mm. Okay. All right. Um, Joe Brennan, uh, we're going to stick with a property-related topic because uh, track mortgages have been back in the headlines this week. And Sibley, Deputy Governor of the Central Bank, was given a speech uh, in Dublin earlier this week, and he made the point that he expects all of the main banks here in Ireland to face enforcement uh, actions as a, from the regulator as a result of how they've handled this tracker mortgage uh, scandal. And you've been able to identify AIB in particular uh, among that group. Yeah, I mean, AIB is <clears throat> is the last remaining uh, bank. So we, we already ha- know that um, the central bank has taken enforcement cases against permanent TSB, KBC, its um, uh, unit, uh, former, su- former subprime unit, uh, um, uh, Springboard, which is the only institution that has been fined to date or sanctioned to date, which was fined about 4.5 million uh, this time last year, Ulster Bank um, and KBC Ireland. So AIB is, is is the last of those. It's not clear as to whether it would be split into two because AIB obviously back in 2015 took over EBS, which is a separate institution. Back around 2011. Sorry, 2011, yeah. yeah. So it's not clear as to whether there'll be two separate investigations. Uh, obviously, some probably, uh, probably. Uh, in, in all likelihood, PTSP. they go after the yeah. the, the, so the what kind of what kind of sanctions, what kind of fines could AIB face? Well, any of them. Uh, basically, back in two thousand and thirteen, uh, laws were changed to increase the maximum fine for an institution from five million for breaches of uh, of, of regulation from five million to ten million or ten percent of of income. Now, is that breaches pre thirteen or post? Well, this is the point. So it is for only for breaches post two thousand and thirteen, and in all likelihood, it'll be banks or institutions who will be captured for. Actions that took place before that, so it's very unlikely that any of them will be caught uh, under the, 10 million. the under yep. the ten million. So it'll probably max. Uh, and Philip Lane million. has been suggesting that individuals could also face sanctions. Individual yeah, I mean, bankers. again, um, 
they the fine for an individual can uh, increase in 2013 from 500 to 1,000 to, to 1 million. But obviously as well, they can actually uh, rule that an individual can't work in, financial, yeah. in a regulated uh, financial firm for a period or indefinitely. Just uh, remind us, Joe, how many people so far have been identified as having been caught up in this um, yeah, issue? Yeah, so, so far, um, the number of accounts, we include basically back in 2010, banks knew as far back and the central bank has been onto this as far back as 2010 when about 7,500 cases were uh, resolved at that stage between Bank of Ireland, KBC and, and, and permanent TSB. If you add those to the, the, the current lot, you're talking about 27,527, 27, uh, as many as at this stage. Some of the banks have come out in, in, in recent times. And Bank say of Ireland, last week. That's included in that. But some of the other banks have have come out and say that, look, they expect that a certain uh, additional mm. numbers. Where's, where's, where's the title going to, where's the total going to lie, do you think, at the end of the day? Well, I think we're heading towards, uh, easily towards uh, 30,000, if not more. Uh, more than that. Mm. Bank of Ireland last week, 6,000 extra, extra accounts uh, affected, up to 175 million being set aside. To redress them? It's well, extraordinary. Yeah, uh, 200 million all told. Bank has always been kind of the, the lowest in terms of the money that's been set aside. It was an outlier in 25 terms of 25 million was the, what they had originally set aside. They set aside 25 million last year. So they were an outlier in, 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 in that space. When you consider this time last year, the central bank was talking about uh, a, 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 an upper limit of uh, 15,000 uh, people being affected by overcharging. Bank of Ireland, if you include 2010, accounts for 15000 itself. Yeah. Fiona, are you surprised it's taken so long for the central bank to deal with this issue? I mean, Joe mentioned that it's mm. going back to 2010. It's extraordinary. Well, and we're only part of the way yeah. through the process. What I always find staggering about it is if you think back 2008, all the banks said, I mean, you can see on their websites they have the press releases, no more trackers. But why didn't someone, in particular in the central bank, go, OK, fair enough, no more new trackers, but we know what's in your mortgage tracker contracts that you've already given out. And it says that these customers have to be offered a tracker. And that question didn't seem to have been raised at the time. And if it had been, this would never have become such an issue. And why? Because, because the there's so many, so many other firefighting issues to deal with. Their eye was taken off the ball. And did the banks know that the eye was been taken off the ball? Mm. Potentially. Mm. Okay, um, Mark, we're going to move to media now. Regular listeners to this podcast will be familiar with the various twists and turns of independent news and media this year. Uh, you've been reporting this week on further developments involving a potential data breach, which is now being looked at by the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement, which is already investigating a whistleblower complaint from INM's former chief executive, Robert Pitt. The weird and wonderful world of independent news and media just continues. That's it. It's the, the story that keeps on giving. Um, and uh, the, the, you know, as, you, as you mentioned there at the outset, um, uh, uh, people will know that the, the, the state's corporate watchdog, the ODCE, has been investigating um, corporate governance matters at INM on foot of a whistleblower complaint by its former chief executive, Robert Pitt. Now, that related to a row over News Talk, which is owned by Dennis O'Brien. Dennis O'Brien is also INM's main shareholder. It was over the price tag that for, for an aborted bid for that. And it was a row between Pitt and INM uh, chairman Leslie Buckley. Leslie Buckley is a close business associate of Dennis O'Brien. Exactly. Now, in the course of its uh, investigation into the, the matters surrounding that, um, the state's corporate watchdog, the ODCE, has uncovered um, evidence of a potential significant data breach at independent news and media involving personal data and it's investigating the company's handling of that and, and, and where it's at now. Now, there are two state agencies involved here. There's also 
the Data Protection Commissioner. Uh, and, 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 and companies and, and organisations are obliged if they think there has been a potential breach of personal data to notify this to the DPC, the Data Protection Commission. Do you know anything specific about this data breach? Potential data breach. We know that it involves this potential data breach involves personal data, um, and and that's really all that we can say about it. Um, uh, and when did it come to light? Uh, in August two thousand and seventeen, August of this year, um, um, which would have been right before actually Robert Pitt um, um, left Independent News and Media in the weeks in the lead up to it, um, it Independent News and Media made an official notification to the DPC that there was a potential data breach. And um, now the matter. Insofar as it was notified to the DPC um, and, and based upon what the DPC received, they, they determined that um, there had been no breach of personal data. Um, and you would think that that's where the matter lies. But notwithstanding the fact that, that the DPC has given that uh, sort of verdict on it, the ODC is now looking at it. The ODC, we don't know what information the ODC has access to beyond what the DPC have. It may well have seen uh, uh, more evidence or more uh, uh, more communications or or, 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 or more things like that. Um, but they are they have essentially widened their investigation uh, into INM now to look at this potential data breach, and uh, and we'll see where the ODC's probe into and that ends up. As far as the DPC is concerned, the matter is put to bed, but not the ODC. Is that well, a fair characterization? Well, well the, D, the DPC gets a notification and the DPC looks at the notification that it's given and it gives a verdict and that's all that's happened there. Whether there will be further notifications, I mean, we don't know. That's just, you know, we're, we're, we're just speculating at this point. We really just have to see where the ODC investigation goes. With and what's INM saying? Um, INM confirmed that, that, that in August that they, they made a notification and they confirmed that they hired Deloitte um, uh, uh, to look at this. Now, our understanding is also that there was a subcommittee of INM's board was set up to look at this potential data breach um, and it examined some of the situations around it. Um, when the DPC came back and said that um, the matter notified to it did not constitute a breach of personal data, um, um, INM told us that it stood um, Deloitte down. So Deloitte's involvement has been has been terminated in relation to this. But uh, I, I think really the, the, the ODC's involvement in this, um, because the ODC's remit is to look at corporate governance and, and so on, uh, uh, it's very interesting to see to, to, to see why the ODC believes that a potential data breach would fall within its remit, but it clearly does. It's clearly seen evidence to believe that it should fall within its remit and it's investigating. And do we have any sense when the ODC, ODC is going to complete its work? No, we don't. The ODC are, 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 are a very... It's a very tightly held organisation. Um, um, Colin Keena, my, my colleague Colin Keena, uh, uh, spoke to the ODC about this and they told him, look, you know, we don't, we cannot comment or, or talk about these type of investigations. They're very, very sensitive matters. Um, and the ODC hasn't said when uh, it's going to report on this. But what we do know is that um, um, it's racking up the legal bills for INM because INM had a trading uh, statement a couple of weeks ago or last week um, in which they said um, it was essentially a profit warning and they partly attributed that to growing legal bills in the ongoing ODC investigation. Um, and they've given, you know, they've given profit warnings in the past on, on, on the basis of this, but it's getting bigger it's and bigger. Costing, it seems to be costing them millions. It seems to be costing them. It, it literally is costing them millions to deal with this, <coughs> which shows that it's not a small matter. Yeah. Joe, just finally and quickly, um, uh, CRH, one of Ireland's biggest uh, PLCs, you're uh, writing about uh, the fact that their Belgard Castle headquarters is going to be turned into something of an innovation stroke management development uh, centre for employees worldwide. They've, uh, they're putting in a planning permission to South uh, Dublin County Council. Um, today, um, putting in planning permission for uh, this new facility um, and they reckon that it'll be 
they use. Basically, they're using the, the old headquarters, which remains a headquarters, but a lot of the administration uh, activities have moved over to uh, to uh, Stonemason's Way in in in, in Rathfarnham. Um, but it remains at the corporate headquarters, and what they want to do is turn it into kind of a global kind of education archiving centre, um, a kind of a, a place where they can kind of bring executives from various parts. I mean, it's it's a it's a much broader and wider uh, uh, group than it was, say, even this time ten years ago, um, and still very acquisitive. Um, so what it uh, what it aims to do is turn this into a centre where they bring kind of uh, managers and senior staff from all over all over the world to one place to. S- brainstorm, uh, uh, think of new ideas, innovation, all that kind of stuff. Right, okay, all right. Sounds interesting. 20 million price tag, I believe? Uh, 20 million plus, at least 20 million it'll cost to do. Uh, it's quite a big site there, isn't it? It's a site, yes. I mean, basically you still have the you have the original uh, medieval tower, which you have a, a Georgian, uh, sorry, you have a, an 18th century house mm. attached to And there's to a that. quarry at the back. There's a quarry at the back and there's a number of kind of, um, what would have been stables behind that and were used as, as offices in the past. And then you have the quarry behind that as well. I understand it'll be fairly close to behind uh, the, the original uh, building. All right. Well, we'll see how that plays out. My thanks to Fiona Redden, Mark Paul and Joe Brennan. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Dominic Coyle of the Irish Times and Peter Vale of Grant Thornton about the single malt tax avoidance structure. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes. And it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, I'm joined in the studio by Dominic Coyle of the Irish Times and Peter Vale of Grant Thornton to talk about the latest tax avoidance wheezed by global multinationals in Ireland as they seek to avoid paying tax on their profits. Uh, Dominic, you've been reporting on this uh, this week. We had what was known as the Double Irish. The then Minister of Finance, Michael Noonan, made clear that he was going to abolish that. I think it's going by 2020. Uh, but we now have a new structure, which the multinationals have put in place, which has uh, many similar characteristics, if you like, as the Double Irish. And it's called the Single Malt. Tell us about it. Yes, ironically, the single malt that appears was actually has actually been around as long as the double Irish. It just it, they didn't need to use it because the double Irish was working so well for them. The essence of the double Irish was that that money was passing through companies that were registered here but not not uh, regulated here and passing on to largely Caribbean-based tax havens where there was no corporation tax. Um, the Minister for Finance then, uh, Michael Noonan, announced in October 2014 that um, as part of this whole OECD clampdown on on tax avoidance. Ireland was going to get ahead of the game and we were going to insist that any Irish resident companies were, were registered here. Um, and that was put up a great fanfare. This is our attempt mm. to actually close this loophole. However, there is in parallel uh, a wording within the tax treaties that Ireland has with 73 different jurisdictions, a, a something called a place of effective management, which is exactly what was operating under the old double Irish. So instead of but instead of going to the Caribbean, the the money is now going to be directed to places, especially like Malta, which has uh, I think zero or very low corporation tax rates. They're changing it slightly at the moment, and the United Arab Emirates. But the same measures will apply. The money will come through companies that are that are Irish resident, but not registered here for for taxation. Right. Okay. So the multinationals. When we got rid of the double Irish, the multinationals probably just had a good laugh to themselves and said, "Good luck to you, lads. Uh, we'll simply uh, use the single malt." 
Exactly. I mean, within eight days of that budget speech, there was a, a advice from a group of American lawyers to to their clients and and in a blog that they ran that uh, that this wasn't going to present any great problems because there was this parallel system that, that would effectively achieve exactly the same. And in fact, because it was uh, targeting a country that was within the European Union, i.e. Malta, in some ways it would be even easier. And this blog was publicly available? Uh, my understanding is yes. Right. And the Irish authorities didn't didn't spot it, didn't realise this? Well, certainly, uh, it, it, this has also been an issue in Apple's discussions with Ireland over uh, their, their tax arrangements here. So it has been an issue that the Irish, if they were not aware, certainly should have been aware of, even as far back as 2014, but certainly mm. at some time between then and now. Peter Vale, you're a tax expert uh, working with Grant Thornton. Were you aware of the single malts around the time that the double Irish was going? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting piece. I suppose just going back to the the origin of just of the the double Irish and and following from Dominic saying about how these work, and I suppose it's important to say that other than the link to incorporation in Ireland, there isn't anything else that these companies typically have, and they don't have any board meetings that are managed in Ireland, managed to control or have substance. So they've no no employees or other link with Ireland, and management control and substance are the two things that typically drive. Um, drive taxability um, and whether you have a tax presence well, or, well, or not. Apple had substance, had considerable substance in Ireland and yet it had tax structures here that were paying damn all tax. Yeah, and I suppose I'm talking about the specific company which is the, the double Irish bit of it. Mm. That company itself wouldn't and I suppose at the time you're explaining you're losing but at the time Ireland would have had look this isn't really our issue but we were caught up in it back in, in 13 and 14 and I think we probably did the right thing because we were caught up in it and we were seen and we were very much part of the OECD's drive to tackle tax avoidance. So I think in light of all of that, we made the decision to effectively abolish those structures with transition phase, but abolish them, even though it wasn't. It's, to be clear, there's no tax, Irish tax being avoided there. Um, what you have now, I suppose we're still, we've got, a, as Dominic said, over 72, 73 treaties. So you can have an Irish company that's incorporated in Ireland, but is managed and controlled somewhere else in a tax treaty jurisdiction. And like other countries, not just Ireland, we'll say, well, hold on, that company, okay, it's incorporated here, but it, it isn't managed to control here. It's no real presence here. It's taxable wherever it is managed to control, wherever its presence is. And we wouldn't be, I mean, the UK would have similar rules, for example, in terms of mm. a UK incorporated company that would be managed Why to control. Why did we shut off the double Irish? I think we did it, I think we did it because of the general mood at the time. And reputational the fact, damage. Yeah, absolutely. Reputational the, the three damage. or's that were quoted right. at the time. How come, the how right come they didn't realise that the single malt uh, structure was, was there in parallel and effectively could be used by the multinationals to the same effect? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I mean, I think it comes back to the tax treaty network. And you know, again, is it our problem? Is it somebody else's problem? You know, there, there's nothing in Ireland in these situations, but there is something somewhere else. It could be malt in that case where it's managed and controlled. So I think it's important to remember that the double Irish structure had a long transition phase as well. So it had been, it was brought in in 2014. It was abolished in 2014 and then there was a transition phase um, after that. And it's important to remember what else was going on at the same time, because there's been a general move away from havens generally as well. I think that's important. And I mean, if you fast forward 10 years, Karen, I don't think you're going to see havens from a corporate perspective having a life. You're seeing onshoring of IP to jurisdictions that have substance like Ireland, but you're seeing other things as well. And you're seeing the OECD, and Ireland's very much part of this, also trying to focus more. Well, let's not focus where the IP is, be it Malta, Bermuda, wherever. Let's focus where the value creation is. And well, for Joe Public listening in who pays, you know, maybe 52 uh, cent in the euro, uh, in taxes on their income, um, they might sort of say to themselves, well, hold on, the government sold us on the double Irish getting rid of it, you know, and doing the right thing and all of that. And yet we had this parallel structure that was there 
and everybody knew about it and uh, they just knew that they'd move from one to the other. So, you know, it made little or no difference. We were just hoodwinked. Well, I think what multinationals would say, and quite rightly, is look at they're being taxed on the substance that they have in Ireland. And that's always been the way and that will continue to be the way. Um, and what else? There are other moves happening. I think there's been a general acknowledgement over the last, I'd say, five years now that globally there's a big drive towards tackling tax avoidance. Mm. And, our, and the minister has said it in the last couple of days. And I think the, the, the structure, the Maltese, is something that would be, I think the minister yeah. said, he'd examine as well. But I think, general, I think that's a more difficult one because that's under every treaty. You'd be fundamentally reviewing every treaty. I think the key thing is that there is a general move away from havens. And that's something we're going to see over the next... Yeah. We're already seeing it. We continue Dominic Pascal Donoghue in Washington, D.C. yesterday uh, said that, you know, the government was going to examine this uh, single malt structure. But, you know, as Peter has said, everybody knew about it. So why, why haven't they done something over the past three years? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I can't believe that the Department of Finance didn't know about it. Uh, but if you look, the, pro- the problem, as Peter outlined it quite rightly, is that these things are difficult to renegotiate. We're, we're very familiar in recent months about the problems of Brexit and what it's going to mean for negotiating trade treaties with other third countries should Britain be ex- exiting the EU. The same goes for tax treaties. These things take years to negotiate and they're, they're all trying to deal with the, the respective interests of two separate parties in each case. And this wording, the, the, um, the place of effective management, has been a standard wording, so standard that even after Mr Noonan uh, got rid of double Irish, this wording was still in place in new tax treaties that were negotiated after that time. So if you're talking about going back and renegotiating all our tax treaties, then that's a really big job. So did finance know about it? I guess they probably should do and maybe did. Could they countenance actually going back and unravelling 73 tax treaties I think they said that that was something that was going to have to go off for a, a longer reason, day. I presume that was the reason for the double Irish being phased out as opposed to being axed, you know, in one fell swoop. I'm not even too sure. It might. I mean, certainly the phasing out gave companies the time to, to relocate, multinationals time to relocate their, their structures mm. into Malta. And certainly the, the report we looked at from Christian Aid showed that there's some evidence that multinationals are already, even before the ending of the double Irish phasing out period, setting up Maltese operations in order to, to avail of the new new arrangements. I think the biggest problem for us is that we made a decision in 2014 that we were going to be seen to get ahead of the game on double Irish to, to restore our reputation and in, as, a, as a good corporate citizen, especially where foreign direct investment is so important to us. And even though, as Peter says, quite correct that the, these, this tax would not necessarily be paid in Ireland anyway, the fact is it will, the, the move to the single malt arrangement will again tarnish our, our reputation. We'll be seen as facilitators. Yeah, sure. And, and that's, that's the problem. Given that for we knew anything. about it uh, back in 2014 and did nothing uh, effectively to change this, I mean, we're, you know, we've, sort of, we've made our bed, we've got a line in it, haven't we? We seem to have. I mean, the minister said they look at it now and it'll be interesting to see what he does on that. But as, as I said, and as Peter's mentioned, you know, physically unravelling these tax treaties is a major, major job. And unfortunately, tax treaties take precedence over domestic tax law. So if there's a clash between what it says in our treaty with Malta as against what it says in, in Irish tax law about uh, Irish resident companies having to be registered here, the tax treaty wins out. OK. Uh, Peter, is this going to add fuel to the fire, if you like, uh, for the likes of France and Germany who've been pushing for tax harmonisation at corporate level now for a number of years? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think it will. I think that, you know, bigger picture, a lot of what the OECD is doing and has been doing 
will actually address a lot of these sort of issues in terms of how do you tax IP. And it's one of the most difficult things to address, but it's something that's actively been addressed and it's taken the longest because it's the most complex. Um, I And I see the OECD and the BEPS project in particular as probably overriding what the EU are doing and ultimately being the better solution for all. So I, I no, I don't see that. Yeah, And cast out 10 years, I mean, given, you know, Everything we know now from Paradise Papers, uh, Panama Papers, LuxLeaks, you name it, yeah. uh, and everything that's come out, you know, with the Apple case, uh, for example, and the European Commission, mm. it, it would seem that these uh, tax avoidance structures that the corporates have been using for many, many years, the, the, the noose is tightening, if you like, on them. Well, I think we'll see a very different global tax landscape. And repeating the point, I think you're going to see more of a focus on value creation. And we know we, we'll see that. And that is that is... That is different. It's been moving in that direction and it's going to continue to move in that direction. And I think the life of a tax haven is quite limited. In the context of corporate tax planning, yes, they will still have a life um, for other reasons and so maybe for individuals, but in terms of corporate tax planning, and you're already seeing it in terms of moves of IP, onshoring, etc. I think that's quite limited. OK, we'll leave it there. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Mark Paul, Fiona Redden, Joe Brennan, Dominic Coyle and Peter Vale. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.